Welcome to the Futurology Podcast. The Futurology Podcast is a community of Redditors who discuss future issues. We discuss everything from technology to social issues, and all in all, it's a pretty good time and it makes you think about the future. Um, one of my inspirations for the uh, whole podcast thing is a man named Nicola. He runs probably the, uh, I would say, the largest future-related future, future related podcast on YouTube right now. Would I be correct in saying that? Well, I, I don't know, uh, to tell you the truth. Plus, uh, comparisons of, of those kinds are not always useful. Yeah. So I just try to do the best that I can and uh, let my viewers and my audience determine how I compare to the alternatives. Yeah, and um, for those of you who aren't familiar with his voice, he's got a little bit of a cold, so if uh, if at any point it starts to, to ache or whatever to talk, just let us know and um, we can cut it short. But Nicola, uh, you've done a lot of things that that come up in our community a lot, like you've gone to uh, Singularity University and, and studied there. So can, can you just give us a little bit of your background and um, what your title is right now? Well, basically, my name is uh, Nikola Danilov, or Nick. Um, I'm also known as Socrates, uh, or the person behind SingularityWeblog.com and the host of Singularity One-on-One podcast. Uh, My background, as far as the podcasting and the blogging is concerned, I've been doing that for about four years, give or take. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of the podcasting, I've done about, I think, 110 interviews or so. Um, As far as my personal background is concerned, I'm originally from Bulgaria. I've been living in Canada for about 15 or 16 years. Um, my education is in political science, philosophy, and economics, mm-hmm. and my master's degree was in political science slash international relations slash, uh, more specifically, uh, armed conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, and are you a full-time futurist right now, full-time future blogger and podcaster? Because I can't imagine you would have time for much else. Yeah, basically... I have been a full-time blogger and podcaster since I started. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I I recently talked to somebody in New York who was kind of surprised that I'm a one-man show, that I do everything from the blogging to the design to the emails to the podcasting to the editing to everything. But that's the world we live in, and technology is giving us great leverage to accomplish more on our own, which doesn't mean that I've got lots of free time, which I don't. (laughs) So, you know, to tell you the truth, I've been doing this for about four years with almost no days off and certainly absolutely no vacation. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I hear you. I'm I'm self-employed, too. And a, a lot of people always say, wow, that must be nice. But not really. I, I mean, I had my first vacation in, in three years. Um, I took it last year. And that wasn't that wasn't very long. It was maybe a four or five day weekend. But um I want to ask you, so when you're in school getting your master's, did you know you were going to end up here? Or I kind of want to know the the event, what kind of branched you out into what you're doing now. Well, basically, like most other amazing things in not only in my life, but in other people's lives, uh, crucial decisions that we make and, and in the long term, very successful one, perhaps, always start with a failure in my uh, experience. Mm-hmm. And so for me, basically what happened was this. I was doing a master's degree at York University here in Toronto. I was writing a major, major research paper called uh, Artificial Intelligence in Times of War. Um, and basically... As part of the research for that paper, I discovered uh, Ray Kurzweil's book, The Singularity is Near. Mm-hmm. I read it, and that book, to- that book totally blew my mind. Yeah. Then I started uh, reading on transhumanism. I discovered Max Moore. 
um, the extropian circles, the transhumanists, um, I basically dive head first into the whole community. And after I graduated university, it was about, I don't know, 2008, 2009, kind of like the peak of the recession here. Mm-hmm. And I stopped counting after I sent maybe about 200 in, uh, resumes. So I wow. might have sent three or 400, I don't know. But I stopped counting after 200. Jesus. And I had one interview. And, you know, I thought my resume wasn't the worst resume in the world. I did have a number of different kind of scholarships and academic accomplishments, previous interesting work experience, or so I thought. But yeah. for whatever reason, I only had one interview, which didn't take me anywhere. And, however, one of the things that I applied for was an open call for basically staff writers for Singularity Hub. Okay. Now, Singularity Hub is the biggest um, uh, blog in the Singularity niche. Mm-hmm. Um, and the founder, the founder is, a Keith, is uh, Keith Kleiner, who started it probably about a year, year and a half before I started my blog. And the reason why... I started was because I was waiting for them to give me a callback because I thought, well, I've been kind of doing the research on that topic anyway for my master's, and it's a topic that I'm very passionate and very interested about. about. Wouldn't it be perfect if I get a job doing this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but as it happens often in life, you know, I didn't hear anything back from Keith oh, no. uh, or his team. And... Um, after waiting in vain for a week or two, then I thought to myself, well, you know what, Nick, maybe you can do this on your own. Maybe the way technology has progressed so far, you can actually start blogging despite the fact that, you know, you don't have any experience in HTML, in programming, in computer, in like web design or anything whatsoever. You know, I didn't have any of the technical know-how to do that. Yeah. And I started... um, basically educating myself with HTML. Uh, It took me a long time to get going, maybe two months, maybe three months before I put my first web page, which was absolutely ghastly. It was absolutely horrendous. The Uh, current website you have, the Singularity Weblog, uh, you designed all of that? Well, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Okay. So the first website that I started was called Singularity Symposium. And it's it's still up. You can still go and check it out. Um, and basically, I designed everything. I sort of coded everything, very basic HTML stuff. Then I went through two or three iterations uh, of that website. And I haven't updated that design for the last four years. Mm-hmm. About six months after I started uh, the HTML website, I happened to fall onto WordPress I gave it a try, and I was blown away. I was like, my God, I cannot believe how easy it is to blog now. Forget about HTML. If you can type on a Word document, you can certainly blog. Right. And so I started um, uh, singularityweblog.com, and I purchased uh, a premium theme, which is Thesis. Uh, And uh, the design basically came about very slowly. I sort of, you know, was learning and doing at the same time and sort of coding here and there a little bit to sort of tweak and customize my design. But I discovered that that's very inefficient because, you know, every time I had to do something, I had to learn it. And even if I've done it once before, because it was a month or two ago, I've already forgotten how to do it. (laughs) Yeah, you have to relearn everything. So I had to relearn, exactly. And so finally, I was very lucky to find somebody from Britain. His name is uh, Dave Alexander, who uh, is a fantastic um, uh, coder and designer. And so basically, with his help, you know, I've been telling him I want this there and I want that there. And he's been very, very good at implementing all my desires and requests, no matter how crazy and ridiculous they may be. That's so, good. so yeah, so I've been sort of uh, getting David's help uh, for the last three years. By the way, he's from Kikotic Media, if you guys are interested. And I, I, I cannot be any happier with him than I have been so far. 
big shout out to him then yeah i i had to buckle and uh get my own guy too after a while because i i just don't have the time i mean if you miss one bracket then yeah. your entire your entire site is messed up and it's just absolutely uh, more more cost effective uh let's let's jump into uh singularity university we a lot of threads often um are people asking, you know, should I go to Singularity University? What exactly am I going to learn there? What can I take from it to get a job in the real world? Can we get some of your uh, some of your experience there? Well, the short answer to the question, should I go to Singularity University, is absolutely yes, mm-hmm. definitely. Uh, now, what would you learn when you go there? Well, let me just say that perhaps you'd be surprised by the things that you learn uh, because they may be not what you'd expect. Uh, I mean, yes, you would learn tons about exponential technology, but I personally learned a lot about myself, uh, learned a lot about uh, leadership, learned a lot about entrepreneurship, uh, learned a lot about networking, um, basically made... And many, many amazing friends from around the world. Uh, yeah, and, and so it totally changed the way I see the world, uh, but not in the way that I expected, uh, but in a different way. So I expected it would be all about the singularity and exponentially growing technologies, and there's a lot about that. But I would say the main thing is the desire to improve the world for for the better, uh, as well as, you know, being exposed to all kinds of different cultures, people from different ages and backgrounds, friendships, amazing network. Um, Yeah, so in my opinion, the question shouldn't be, should I go to Singularity University? The question is, how? How can I make it happen? It's pretty difficult to, to get into, I take it? It is pretty difficult, but like most other things, it's not impossible. Okay. Uh, so, for example, if you guys Google search or if you go to my blog, singularityweblog.com, and you can search for top five tips for applying to Singularity University, you can read my tips uh, about how you can uh, have the best chances to apply, in my opinion, and how I did it. And at the end of that article, you can also find tons of links with uh, some of the lectures which I had recorded from Singularity University, some of the video tours that I did on the, on the campus, NASA's Ames campus in Mountain View, mm-hmm. uh, some of the crazy field trips that we did uh, with, with some of my friends from Singularity University going to all kinds of places. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can even watch some of our parties. So from from the very serious to the very sort of daily and fun stuff, I tried to document my experience day by day as I as I was there for about ten weeks, and so uh, whoever is interested to find out uh, more about that experience from my personal point of view, it's all available online. That's awesome. One thing I like about it too is that every time, like you said, it changed you, changed the way you think. Every time there's a, a graduating class from the Singularity University, they kind of spread out like seeds and kind of push those ideas out to other people as well. And then, uh, you know, one turns into two and it's, um, it's almost like exponential growth, but for knowledge. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things about that place is that it is incredibly diverse. And so people come and, you know, it happens so that about half the people that come never leave every year pretty much but the other half do go back to where they came from and that helps spread those ideas incredibly so when i was there in 2011 we had people from i think 35 countries if i'm not mistaken um and we ranged from about 19 years of age which was the youngest uh, attendee to about i think 53 to 54 Wow. And, you know, uh, those people are both male and female, but also all kinds of races, uh, all kinds of backgrounds, like some of them were 
for example, people without any education whatsoever. I had a couple, one, at least one of my classmates who I'm not sure even if he made it through high school, but he was a very good entrepreneur and a software uh, developer. I yeah. had other people who were uh, inventors, engineers, academics, uh, social entrepreneurs, uh, technologists, futurists. Uh, we had we had a few lawyers, designers, all kinds of people, doctors, many doctors. So that's that's one of the incredible thing about this place is that you have unsurpassed diversity. And therefore, you're exposed to ideas and interactions that you cannot, I believe, find anywhere else. Do you think that, uh, this is kind of off topic, but do you think that public education needs to kind of take a, a page out of this book and, and go a, a different route? Because I know there's somewhere out there right now, there's a 14-year-old who can code better than my web designer that I use, and he's probably failing an English class or something just because he's bored. Um, yeah, I have no doubt about that. And and look, my my take on education is this: I've spent many years of my life getting education, and I've been very fortunate in, in that way. And I've met some of the most incredible people in my life uh, doing this, and they've had a huge impact on me and on the decisions that I've made. However, I think that that has changed radically in the last five or six years, and it will change even more radically in the next decade or so. So I, I think eventually, to tell you the truth, I'm very pessimistic on universities and their capability to keep up uh, with with education, with the developments. I mean, just to give you one example, Singularity University reevaluates their curriculum every two months. Right. Mm -hmm. When I was doing my master's, I and when I submitted my uh, final research paper, I got destroyed because I didn't address sufficiently enough the literature from the 70s and the 80s. Wow. Now, I did read all recommended literature from that time that was recommended to me by my supervisors, etc. But... In the final manuscript, I decided not to include much of it because the the, the amount of work and the, the 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 sort of the revolution of of progress that happened after that period uh, dwarfed it in my view, and, and so I focused on that. But because my some of not all, but some of my supervisors uh, grew up or were educated at that period, they were more or less stuck at that time frame, at that timeline. I don't Hmm. think that they had made much progress, say, after 85. Uh, And, you know, that in turn had impact on me and and the way they perceived my work and how crazy it sounded. Uh, And, I mean, five years ago, the ideas about the singularity and transhumanism in general were very much looked at sort of fringe issues in academia. And while this has changed considerably in the last five years, uh, it still it still seems to me that academia kind of looks on those issues very much down. Sort of, huh. those are not really serious issues. And you know, we academics we have more important stuff to deal with than some you know uh, sects or or whatever like transhumanism and and the singularity. Right. So if you went back to where you got your masters today they would still be grading students on if they referenced enough stuff from the 70s and 80s? Well, I don't know if that would be the case, but five years ago when I thought there was a revolution happening in drone warfare, uh, which was the very beginning and it was very cutting edge and there was very little material written on it. And and one of the reasons why I went in it, it was because it was so new and fresh. You know, people were still stuck uh, 25 years ago. So I don't know if that's changed or not, but even if it has changed, I would venture to guess that it hasn't changed sufficiently to keep in touch because the very structure of the organization and the the university as an institution sort of prevents you to have that kind of flexibility, Mm -hmm. right? What university is able to reevaluate its curriculum every two months? I mean, over there, people have... uh, I've seen people basically 
copy and paste or, or uh, zero copy their syllabuses uh, that they taught course on, say, for the last 20 years verbatim without updating or changing anything whatsoever. Wow. Right? So they, they basically laid down a course, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, and when the new year comes, they basically go and make more copies of the syllabus, and that's about it. Ugh. No updates, no awareness of what's going on. Yeah. I, so do you think the future is uh, online classes? Well, I think you cannot really replace the sort of the personal, the Socratic way of teaching. So that's why Singularity University is so unique, because you get to have one-on-one -on -one time with some of the most incredible people in the world. And that's very much the sort of the Socratic way of teaching, the, the sort of Plato Academy sort of uh, learning. But yeah. at the same time, uh, the university first doesn't often offer that almost at all. Because if you are an undergraduate, say right now, some of the courses have four or five hundred, up to two or three, believe it or not, three thousand students sometimes in a single course. So for a student spending enough time with, uh, with the professor, that's almost impossible. And, and secondly, uh, the, 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 the cost, the economic cost of that kind of education has skyrocketed while the value of it has went the other way. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge discrepancy between the, the rising cost and the diminishing return of that kind of value, which is very much either going obsolete or already largely obsolete. And so for me, the future will be some kind of a mixed kind of a learning online and in person in places with very much hands-on approach like Singularity University. Yeah, personally, I, I envy people who can open a uh, an online tutorial and just get it because when it comes to learning, I feel like I'm like a Neanderthal. I'm like, what? I huh. like I really need that teacher to like be pointing at the screen. Okay, click here. But once I get it, then it's like, it, you know, like I, I I fly through it. Once I get it, it's just that first hurdle. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, if but I mean if. If I had like a, a a holographic teacher, maybe right over my shoulder, showing me what to do, that that might work too. I don't know. Yeah, but, um, you have a, a sufficiently smart artificial intelligence which gives you interactive lessons, say online, where you can actually interact with it, be it with questions, be it with your uh, browser, with your mouse, or in any other interface, and so that it can correct you or guide you. Uh, which I think is the direction we're definitely going in, then uh, it will be very hard for a 60-year-old professor who probably hates using his or her cell phone mm -hmm. um, to compete with that. I agree. I, I was going to ask you some other questions, but since we just touched on AI, uh, I, I kind of want to dive into that since your your blog is called Singularity. Um there's two different schools of thought. One one is that AI will never have a consciousness. That, I mean, the processing power will just get better and better and better, and we'll have faster cell phones, but we'll never achieve AI. Then there's the other radical, Hugo de Garris, who says, uh, no, we really need to look at these issues and, and maybe slow down because uh, once they're smarter than humans, then, then all hell is going to break loose. Do you kind of fall under any category, or are you just like, let's wait and see? Well, I don't think that the wait-and-see approach is a healthy approach. I think that the wait-and-see is a very passive approach, which basically means that, you know, if you wait and see, even if you're pointing in the right direction, mm -hmm. you'll run the risk of being run, run down by, you know, the people behind you or run yeah. over by them. So I I believe that you have to be proactive. Uh, and so my take on it is that, look, figure out what's the kind of future you want to live in. Figure out what's the, the things you want to move towards and what's the things you want to avoid and start working on it. That's my take. So we can argue intellectually about this, that and the other, but I think what we do in the, in the end of the end uh, in the end of the day would make the difference and that's You're, why i try to s sort of steer the the, the debate 
uh, if I can, or at the very least, start the debate where we can all come up with our own conclusions about our own opinions and then take action. Um, you're keeping it vague, and I like that. So I'm going to dig. I, I'm going to dig at you a little bit. Um, do, do you think it's going to be like uh, people have different um, ideas about what the singularity is going to be? But if, if you look at Wikipedia, it's it's, uh, it, it's at a time where our technological and inventions. How's it go? Maybe you can give us a, a broad definition on on the singularity. And my ultimately, my question is going to be: Is it going to be a hard singularity or a soft singularity? Well, so let me start backwards. So first of all, I think it's much more likely to be a soft takeoff than a hard takeoff. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is that I don't think we're going to get it right on the first time, and. If there's one thing that I kind of agree with, with Jaron Lanier, that's that the first singularity or two may end up with the blue screen of death. However, we are going to get better after that. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to repeat the original mistakes. So that's why I don't think that the singularity is likely to have a hard takeoff because there will be many things that need to fall into place at the same time, both internal to that artificial intelligence, but also external to its environment and the way it interacts with it, mm-hmm. so that it's a hard takeoff, a real true hard takeoff in the proper meaning. That's right. why I think it's much more likely to be a slow takeoff. And that's the good news, I think, for us. Because when it's a slow takeoff, that means we have much more ability to influence and impact on the direction on the rate, and on the hopefully final outcome of it. Yeah, now, I, I tend to agree with you. Now, as, as far as the definition is concerned, um, you know, there's almost as many definitions as there are people out there, even like members in the community. Uh, some time ago, I published a paper called 17 Definitions of the Technological Singularity. And the reason why I picked such a random number is precisely so it's a random number just to show that, you know, there are almost as many definitions as there are people and that everyone has a little bit of a different take or flavor of it. But the one that I really like, uh, in terms of brevity at least, which sort of captures it, in my view, very well, is IJ's good, uh, IJ Good's definition, which basically, in two words, is intelligence explosion. And now, this intelligence explosion can be an explosion of artificial intelligence, for example, but it doesn't have to be. It may be simply augmented human intelligence, right, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. uh, reaches to that level uh, first. And to tell you the truth, I don't know which one is safer and which one is better. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, there, there may be positives for a human to be in control, but there certainly are negatives in that case, too. Yeah. So, I don't know. Have you ever thought about that we currently are in a soft singularity and that it started the first time two computers were networked together and then, you know, that's grown to now we have a few billion people networked and we have smartphones that are just an extension of of us, really. I mean, if, if you think about, like, having every answer in Wikipedia just in the palm of your hand... Um, I mean, dinner conversations have have really changed quite a bit. But sometimes when I when I think about this, the the singularity and whatnot, I um, a, a lot of people, the the newer futurists especially, think it's like the day that um, you know, almost like a judgment day. But it could be a positive one, just where you know machines are aware now and whatever. I, I don't really believe that. I I believe that. You know, you could even you could even go back and say the singularity started when when the first phone line connected two people uh, across the country. I, I think it's uh, the connectivity of consciousness that is what starts it. And then, um, well, that sing- has to do more with your own personal interpretation. I think of the singularity as I was pointing yeah. before. There are as many definitions as people, but. In my view, to be properly called the singularity, we have to have the so-called event horizon uh, element of it. Uh, So, basically, 
in physics a singularity is a black hole it is a place where the fabric of space-time ruptures and right. the laws of the universe don't hold true anymore at least the way we know them mm-hmm. uh, and there's this phenomenon called the event horizon uh, behind which uh, we cannot see what's happening mm-hmm. and so that sort of radical borderline radical difference is not something that I think we've seen many times before in the history of the cosmos so if you go all the way back obviously the original singularity must be the Big Bang right because there was nothing or there was one infinitely dense point or whatever which then erupted to create uh, the universe right in the Big Bang Mm-hmm. So that's a singularity, right? So it's a radical change to everything that was going on before it. Then perhaps there might have been a couple of others. Uh, the one that I'm willing to accept is the moment when you had organic life come to be. Uh, in other words, you had some kind of you know inorganic matter uh, that somehow at some point, you know, a few billion years ago triggered the creation of single-celled organic matter. And right. then life began. So that's another singularity. You know, you don't have life, and then suddenly you have life. Yeah. That's a and, radical change. And one could argue that it, we've also had one um, when language was invented or, or fire or, or the wheel. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I think we've had um, several singularities throughout. I, I'm willing to accept the language part, more or less, but the will, not so much. Because the will is much, it's it's one invention among many. Uh, you can argue, well, to invent the will, we must have invented before that, you know, the, the stones that we were able to cut uh, the trees out of which we made the first will, or, or, or the other stones that we used to make stone wheels or whatever the tools that made that wheel, right? They were a singularity, right? Mm -hmm. So then we start arguing about this tool versus that tool. So in my view, the language is is a bigger, better uh, candidate because it's much more radical and harder to to find any competitive comparisons to. Yeah, I I agree. when when we started, you said uh, one of Kurzweil's books w- was uh, one of your inspirations yeah. to k- kind of head down this path. If for new futurists who are who are just um, checking out links and and starting to contribute in discussions, is there any book or books plural that you would recommend a new futurist should read? Are there any must reads? So let me just, before I answer that, let me just make one point about the, the, the fact that you're calling me a futurist. So mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm a futurist, right? I, I'm not sure if I'm a futurist, let alone a good, a good one, because I consider myself to be more of a philosopher or a mm-hmm. person who is on a journey to, to answer a few questions. Um, and so I don't have... Uh, um, let's say uh, a prediction about the future which is written in stone and that I'm willing to publish and say okay here's how the future is going to be so I'm not sure if I I should properly be called a futurist I am somebody who is very much interested in in the future Mm -hmm. but I think the underlying foundation for that is my own personal philosophy in particular Socratic philosophy and, and I think that as far as my personal journey is concerned, it very much has to do with the questions that I ask and that we ask as society. Because the question that you ask very much sort of predetermines the kinds of answers that you're going to get. That's why it's very important to ask yourself, what is the question that I should be asking myself? Or what is the question I should be asking, period? Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, you know, futurists are probably more accurately people like Ray Kurzweil uh, and, and a number of others who have dared to, to sort of write the timeline and, and a sequence of events. Um, I'm not one of those people. I very much respect their work. I read it. I'm interested in it. Um, I want to influence and steer the future to the best way possible, but I'm trying to do it from a sort of a more human uh, point of view.
Yeah. No. Maybe maybe the name futurist it also sounds a little eclectic or whatever cuz I I just think it's it's somebody who's um excited about the future and uh wants to wants to see change, wants to use technology to make the world a better place. If uh, you define it like that, I cannot disagree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Now, for going back to the books and answering that question, um, I would recommend, you know, I started with The Singularities Near. That's an amazing book. Uh, it totally blew my mind, as I said. But what I want to say is read more books. Don't take on one book and don't turn it into the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, two books are always wiser and better than one book, and three books are usually better and wiser than two books. Mm-hmm. So, and by the way, the same applies to the genres of books. So don't just read science fiction or just science. Read novels. Uh, read all kinds of different books. Read philosophy. Read religious books occasionally too. And and try and mix it because diversity is a strength that is perhaps the biggest intellectual strength that we can possess. Mm-hmm. Now, to be a little more specific, a few books that I've really enjoyed you know, on my journey, uh, other than The Singularity is Near, are books like, for example, Accelerando by Charlie Stross, uh, who is one of my favorite, uh, one of my several most favorite uh, science fiction writers. Uh, Another very good book, actually it's a trilogy, it's the WWW Trilogy by Robert J. Sawyer. It's the Wake, uh, Watch and Wonder trilogy by Robert J. Sawyer. Is that science fiction? It is science fiction, yes. Okay. But, uh, and that's about sort of a, um, a soft takeoff uh, kind of singularity. Um, amazing trilogy, amazing book. Uh, Robert is a fantastic science fiction writer. He, I think he has won pretty much most, if not all, science fiction awards that I can think of. Yeah, that, Sorry, that's... No, that's that's fine. Uh, science fiction is probably what I'm the most interested in as well, but uh, I haven't read those. You've also interviewed um, quite a few science fiction authors. Do you, would you say he um, – well, I, I guess this is hard for you because you said you don't really have a set-in-stone prediction of the future, but it, out of like David Brin and, and – Ramiz Nam, who who just uh, released a book called Nexus a while back, um, are there any of them who you think nail it better than the rest? Well, you know, that's a tough con- comparison, a little bit like apples and oranges. And the reason why is that David's book uh, existence is uh, situated a lot further into the future than Ramiz Nam's book uh, Nexus. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, I personally. Uh, like Mez's book very much because it's very I read that book I think over two afternoons Wow! Um, and and you know I, I just planned to read it because I interviewed him I interviewed Ramez is one of my friends and I interviewed him on the book and I was planning to sort of take my time and we had a week before our interview so I was like planning to take a couple of hours per afternoon and read it in between the, the other stuff that I was doing and I opened it one afternoon and I had to stop at three in the morning because my wife was getting annoyed with me, uh-huh. and, and so I and I finished it the next day. That's and awesome. that book was a total page turner, and it it was fantastic in my view. And I can't yeah. wait, by the way, to get the second part of that book, which is coming in September, I think, called Crux. Yeah. So so they've all kind of I, I mean they they've all kind of have their niche, and it's it's hard to see which one paints the best picture. I don't know. For some reason I couldn't get into Bryn's existence. I know he's a, he's a a really good author and everyone loves him, but um, I have a little bit of ADD and when I can't get into a book is when I'm reading pages and I'm thinking about like football or I'm thinking about getting my oil changed in my car. And and that happened a lot during that book. I don't know why. Um, Well, David's book is, you know, voluminous book. It's a very thick, big, heavy book. Yeah. I don't know how many pages it was, but it, it took me a long time to read myself. 
And also he tends to pace it in a different way and, and goes into much more detail in a number of other things and issues, which make it a slower read. Yeah. Um, my personal favorite sci-fi author is Peter F. Hamilton, and I think one of the reasons is because of his Night's Dawn trilogy. He um, he explained, um, well, he detailed out one of my favorite things right now, and that's the vac train, the vacuum tube train. And I saw that your latest interview was with an inter was with the engineer who is currently involved with the vacuum tube train. Yeah, I just interviewed Daryl Oster from ET3.com, uh, who is trying to 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 bring to reality what is called the evacuated tube transport. Uh, yeah. And the, the most amazing thing about this is that, first, I, I haven't heard of this up until uh, just the last four or five days, and I was just very fortunate to attend the Idea City conference in Toronto. And um, I, I saw um, Daryl's presentation there, and it totally blew my mind, so I asked him for an interview afterwards. But the other thing which totally amazed me is that we have actually all the technologies to develop that today. Exactly. So you don't need, the most shocking thing is that you do not need any amazing technological breakthroughs in anything to make this a reality. We yeah. already, according to Daryl, we already, and he made a very strong argument for it, we already have all the technology to build, you know, pretty decent vacuum in, in the tubes. We, we do know how to use uh, maglev trains, and we've been using them for 20 or 30 years at least. Mm -hmm. and, and when you remove all the air resistance, uh, you would get much, much higher efficiency in, in terms of speed and all of that. Right. And, it's like and, being in space. Yeah, and fuel economy. Exactly. It's like bringing space travel to Earth. Exactly. And so that's what totally, totally flabbergasted me. Yeah, I, I think that's um, what pisses me off the most is that, I mean, when we built the highway system, it like there wasn't a big ROI. I, I don't think we just did it. And thank God we did do it. But I mean, we have the technology to travel faster than airplanes and connect all the major cities and and really live in a in a high tech future and um we'd rather spend money on on stupid things so i i kind of want to um do, do you think american politics is to to blame for some of this or well unfortunately i do <laughs> yeah i think um you know i am a former i'm a recovering political scientist and um, when I started and much of my career, I spent studying American foreign policy usually and a little bit of American uh, uh, domestic policy, politics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm watching by what's going on right now in the last, say, three or four or five years, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm getting concerned. I'm getting concerned both for for America itself as a country. I mean, my wife is a is an American citizen. My mm -hmm. wife's family is actually from Rochester, New York. So we have lots of relatives that we go to visit quite often there. Um, and Rochester is unfortunately one of those cities that have been hit very very badly. I mean, Rochester was known as Kodak City, and Kodak was a 20 billion dollar company with 150,000 employees just about 15 years ago I think maybe 17 or 18 at the most it's a company that invented digital photography itself and then got destroyed by it wow. and now everything is closed of course and 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 we knew many people who worked in Kodak um mm. and who never were able to find uh Equal, equally decent jobs afterwards for one reason or another. Uh, but the, the, the politics of it is that I'm afraid that the American society is getting radical, radicalized and sort of polarized in a way that really concerns me. Uh, I, I cannot believe the, 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 the acrimony of one American to another American that I witness sometimes, and it's, it's shocking to me. It uh, is. 
uh, and, and it, it really worries me because of America, but also because Canada is very close to America too. And, and I know that uh, if something were to happen there, chances are eventually it's going to come over here too. Right. The the thing about Canada though is you guys don't seem like you have the batshit crazy politicians like we do. Like we have a uh, Joe Barton from Texas who says. Um, if we build too many wind farms, it might slow down the wind, which will cause the planet to get hotter. Like that, that, okay, listen, that's funny, and it helps comics like uh, Jon Stewart get material, but at the end of the day, that should upset us. And um, what else did he say? Uh, humans couldn't be the cause of climate change because the flood in the Bible was caused by God, not humans. Like, uh, okay, we can all ha-ha-ha, that's a dumb Texas conservative without teeth, but that should, at the end of the day, um, upset and concern us, because how are we ever going to get a, a, a vac train, an evacuated transport? Like, it, he'll look at that and shoot it down and say, well, that's going to take jobs away from people working in the coal mines. And I and I think that's very small-minded, too, because uh, I have a, a friend I went to high school with who, who does work in coal, and that's like saying those people can't adapt and, and learn new skills, and why can't a person who works in a coal mine be a, a, you know, a, a maintenance person on a wind farm or, or install solar panels? It's like saying that's their job and, and they can only do that. Uh, yeah, I think that type of thinking is is really dangerous, and uh, we do need a we do need a change, but well, I don't know how we're going to have it. Well, you know what? Let me disagree a little bit with you to the extent that you know Canada has its own share of horrendous politicians, um, hmm. and I can give you a couple of examples that make me ashamed at the moment. The most notable of which is perhaps our mayor here in the domestic scene the mayor of Toronto. You know, Toronto is the third largest uh, city between U.S. and Canada. So the, the biggest ones are L.A. and New York, of course. Yeah. Toronto just surpassed Chicago. Wow. Anyway, our mayor was, uh, I mean, he's got a number of absolutely moronic, totally idiotic things, like declaring war on cyclists publicly and things like that. I'm a cyclist, by the way. Yeah. So he declared war on me. But Besides that, he's the guy who smoked crack cocaine with a bunch of people who are now arrested and who was on video doing it, by the way, and mm. who Gawker Media uh, was trying to publish the video. But, I don't know, uh, the video disappeared. Luckily, we do have a screenshot or a screen capture of that video where he's hugging the two or three drug dealers around him. And then the police actually raided these people, and they're, and they're all arrested now on drug charges. But, but the mayor is refusing to resign, and he hasn't explained, like, forget about, let's say, maybe the video wasn't there or didn't exist, but he never explained what he was doing with these people, why is he hugging them. Uh, he never explained any of that. He fired a bunch of people from his own stuff who refused to... Anyway, so wow. the, the, the point to... to so we, we we in Toronto, it turns out, we have a a, a crack-smoking mayor, if you believe that or not. So let me <laughs> tell you, we have our own share of, of idiots here. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean, we really don't need politicians anymore. Um, your voice can be heard very easily through through the Internet. You just need everyone to, you know read the bills or whatever and, and vote like that, I think. I, I don't think it's fair to have a guy who thinks windmills slow down the wind and that can heat up the earth. That guy should not be making decisions for you. That's dangerous, um, just to me. And, and you shouldn't have a, a, a crack smoker making decisions for your <laughs> city either. Um, for a city, you know, Greater Toronto area is about seven and a half or eight million people at the moment. So imagine. <laughs> wow. Hey, we're we're coming up in uh, almost on the hour mark already. This is um, going pretty fast. But 
what technology would you say you're the most excited about right now, or, or what's what's bubbling up now, or is there anything that just sparks you the most? Well, I love all kinds of technology, but the one that I think is the one that makes me the most optimistic has to be life extension. And the reason is that if we get this right, we might be able to enjoy all the other technologies. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, you can alleviate suffering because there's so many people suffering from all kinds of diseases who shouldn't be suffering right now. Mm-hmm. But also, we can prolong the healthy lifespan of humanity in a way that you and me and everybody else could hopefully get to stay here longer to enjoy, to learn, to make a bigger difference in the world. And and I think that is is one of the things that makes me the most excited. Yeah, and it is exciting. When you say um, life extension... Do you uh, do you lean more towards like Aubrey de Grey who wants to do it um, like biologically or more towards uh, the Russia 2045 project? And I believe you've interviewed both both of these guys. Yeah, I've interviewed Aubrey a couple of times. He was actually one of the very nice people who wrote um, a letter of reference for me when I was applying to Singularity University. Uh, by the way, the other person, one of the other two people was uh, Dr. James Martin, who unfortunately just was uh, found drowned next to his um, island uh, in the Bahamas. Oh, my he God. He was found by a kayaker just yesterday morning. Very sad news. And I just saw him in New York a week ago, and we took a picture together. And he opened the Global Future 2045 Congress. And... Um, uh, James Martin was the biggest ever donor in the history of Oxford University. He donated, I think, about $150 million to them and started the Oxford Martin School of Future Studies. But he was also an incredible person uh, who's helped me personally and many other people. And it's it's a great loss for humanity. Um, so uh, yeah, totally shocked me. Uh, but going back to the question, so I've interviewed... Uh, both and um, I don't know uh, I think that perhaps Aubrey's approach might be from my sort of non-expert point of view uh, more promising in the short run Mm -hmm. so in other words um, you know I I am actually planning to go to Arizona to interview Professor uh, Dr. Stuart Hameroff on quantum consciousness um, on July the 5th. So I'll be actually, July the 4th, I'll be celebrating in the U.S. Yeah. And, and on the, in in uh, Tucson. And then on the 5th, I'll be interviewing him. And um, there's so much, you know, it, or it seems consciousness and neuroscience have, have done substantial progress, but it seems that they're much further away uh, from you know the the promise of mind uploading or whole brain emulation, then we could be with some kind of you know genetic modification or twe- tweaking of our biology, which could potentially give us uh, biological uh, immortality or at least a very sufficient life extension of say a hundred or two hundred percent, so that we would have enough time to figure out the rest of it. Yeah, I, I, you know, if if I'm about to go, if if I'm about to, uh, if I'm about to die, I would not mind uploading and living in like a virtual environment and still being able to search the internet until they find a way to that I can be inside a biological cloned body again. Uh, and I, I mean, I don't think it's sure it's it's scary, but um, it, it's better than the alternative, which is death. Uh, I agree. I agree with that. And, and, and yeah, if you're facing that kind of a stark choice, you know, mo- many of us, I think, would choose, you know, to to experiment with mind uploading and to give it a try rather than the certainty of death. On the yeah. other hand, that may not be as easy as we think it is. And there's this very serious debate right now going like Ray Kurzweil was very upset or it seemed to me he, he seemed to me not upset, but very sharp in his denunciation of the Rosen uh, hammer of uh, idea of quantum consciousness during uh, GF 2045. Really? Uh, 
and I think yes, uh, and I think he. I mean, he tried to sort of oversimplify it by saying, "Well, people think that quantum mechanics is very mysterious, and the consciousness is also very mysterious. Therefore, they make the argument: well, the the consciousness must be quantum mechanical in nature." Now, hmm. I don't know if that's a fair way to to represent the other point of view, but the fact, but it is true that the majority of neuroscientists right now are skeptical about quantum, uh, the quantum mechanics of consciousness or the mm -hmm. quantum nature of consciousness. So hmm. it depends who is right and who is wrong on this sort of debate. And that could have a serious impact in terms of perhaps decades, if not ever, on whether we're actually able to emulate and create simulations or not. Because yeah. if our nature is quantum, if our consciousness is quantum mechanical, then it's, it may be probably almost impossible for us to capture it. Right. Or at it, the very least, it would be much harder than if we are using traditional Newtonian physics. I, I need to read up on that myself again, too. But I, I question this more and more, um, especially as of late, because in a lot of science fiction, uh, most recently, uh, Prometheus, the David, the AI, wasn't a real AI because he didn't have a soul, and it seems like it all comes back to having a soul. But really, what is a soul? Um, I watched uh, Through the Wormhole last week with Morgan Freeman. I don't know if you guys get that show up there, but uh, they were saying that um, being self-aware you don't learn it until you're about four years old, and that's about the age you come become embarrassed. Like they would um, be talking to these kids, and then put a piece of paper on their head so they they wouldn't they wouldn't see it. And then all the adults in the room had a piece of paper on their head, and then they showed the kids a mirror, and um, they wouldn't take the piece of paper off their head because they wanted to be like everybody else. But a kids less than about four years old would be like, oh, there's a piece of paper on my head. What is this? You know, and look at it. And uh, it, it's the same thing with with AI. I think like could could you did it do this? Did it did this robot make a sad face because it was programmed to do that, or be, because it actually felt that? Um, it, it's definitely a, a difficult question. Well, let me just say for the record that I absolutely hated Prometheus. Um, oh. I actually wrote a, a big rant on my blog uh, on my blog about it called Prometheus gave us fire Ridley Scott's film gave us hype disappointment and all the wrong messages <laughs> and I go into detail about or into some detail about why and how I hate this movie so much uh, and by the way one of the things that you point out too about the fact that David allegedly didn't have a soul uh, that's a very sort of religious kind of a Christian interpretation of uh, the soul uh, and is it the sort of foundation of the claim and, and which is one of the reasons why I hated that movie among many others and not even the, the first probably five but one of the reasons for sure because I am uh, more sort of materialistic in the sense that I, I'm, uh, I believe in with, I believe that we are created out of atoms and molecules, mm -hmm. and therefore I don't see and and they can explain who and what we are, uh, and and certainly some kind of archaic religious uh, concept as the soul uh, or God um, is much less helpful uh, in, in that process than than science and and just. Uh, uh, following the laws that that the molecules and the atoms that that are you know consisting of our bodies right. uh, basically follow right and I think that learning those laws and those interactions would help us immensely whereas uh, most major religions are more or less dead end as far yeah. as I'm concerned so yeah but but personally I cannot stand that movie and uh, I I've ranted about it. Uh, so it's out there for anyone interested to find out why. I, I do want to read that now uh, because I, I mean, you, you kind of, you can't take that movie at, at face value because there's, there's a lot of things that, that just don't make sense, especially um, the, the robot having like a snarky, I'm, I'm better than you 
attitude. And, and there were some other things. I, I mean, if that's that's close to 100 years in the future, that technology really didn't impress me outside of the ship that was able to travel yeah, to another system. Yeah, they were going after certain kinds of symbolism that was very, very annoying to me. Like, yeah. for example, Peter Whelan's character was very old and decrepit and ugly and deformed, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, come on, we, we already have most of the technologies. Look at the Hollywood stars. They're 60 and 70 years old, and they look pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this guy looked much worse than them. So, but he was, he, was also, he was also like 100 years old. Sure, whatever, but it's a hundred years into the future. Don't we have a better way to fix that by that time? Oh, you're right. Yeah. And 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 then look at their weapons. Even uh, they had uh, flamethrowers, mm-hmm. right? Why is this? Is it because the science will be like that, or is it because of the ancient legend about Prometheus giving us fire? I would uh. venture to bet it's got to do more about the the legends and the fire symbolism rather than the fact that. By then, we would have ten types of different kinds of weapons that would be infinitely more effective than that. Yeah, th- there is a lot of symbolism in the in the movie, um, but I, I don't want to get too too hung up on it. Um, sure. Uh, two two more. Um, so, would you say you're optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Well, you know what, I don't know of any single pessimist who's ever changed the history of the world mm-hmm. and especially in a better in a in a better direction mm-hmm. i mean so the only way you can make a difference is if you believe you can make a difference or at least you believe that it's worthwhile trying to make a difference so you have to be optimist otherwise if you're pessimist you might as well as well lie down on the floor and you know i think in ancient greece they had this obscure sect which obviously disappeared very quickly called the quietists who were basically lying down on the floor and starving themselves to death until they died because everything was an illusion and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and they were pessimistic about everything. Uh, so <laughs> if, you, if you are totally skeptical about everything, then you can't really do anything. You can't really get out of bed and say, okay, well, I'm going to have a great day today. So you have to have that little bit of optimism to keep yeah. you going. Wow, that's nicely put. And I think I think I heard this interview on your podcast. I can't remember who said it, but uh, a pessimist who doesn't give an answer or a solution to the the problem they're talking about is really just a coward. Um, you can be a, a realist and and maybe not be optimistic and be a realist and try to find a solution, but uh, yeah, a, a pessimist who says we're just going to die. Um, do you remember who that was? I believe it was on your show. Yeah, I, I've actually had that said by a few people um, on my show. Um, so I, I don't know which one of them was it, but I've had several. Yeah, Nicola. Uh, at the end of at the end of all your podcasts, you ask your guests if they have a single message for the audience. And uh, since we have you on the show, that's that's what I'd like from you. <laughs> In Bulgaria, where I'm from, they say um, that's like using your own stones to be thrown onto your own head. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I don't know that that's probably not an easy thing to translate. But the point is that you're turning the table on me, which is absolutely fine, of course. Uh-huh. Now, I have this thing about sort of collecting quotes. Um, I'm really fond of short quotes and proverbs. And I've collected quite a few of them by now. But one of my most favorite ones is uh, by George Bernard Shaw. Uh, And it was uh, written, I think, in 1903, uh, where he says, The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. So I just want to say to everyone who's listening, be unreasonable. Mm. Don't be reasonable. Don't, say, don't listen to people who say 
don't be so picky. And I don't care what it is we're talking about, right? Maybe we're talking about uh, getting a job or getting a girlfriend or getting an education or something. You know, people say, oh, you're too picky, you'll never find a girlfriend. Or, oh, you're too picky, you'll never, uh, you know, find a good job. Oh, you're too picky, you'll never do this. You know what? My thing is, don't settle down. Don't wow. don't be uh, don't sacrifice your dream. You know, mm-hmm. don't listen to reasonable people <laughs> who usually think the best for you and who just want to prevent you from having your heart broken. Right. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, one of the most incredible people that I met in, at Singularity University was astronaut Dan Barry. He's yeah. the head of faculty there, and he's a three times NASA astronaut. I think he's been twice to the International Space Station, and for some time he held the longest spacewalk record, uh, which sometime after that was uh, bested by others. But he had to apply 13 times to NASA. Wow. And it's one thing to apply when you're 23 years old and to have a no, and it's another thing to apply for the 13th time in a row when you're 35 and have a no. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes real guts real courage, real determination to to follow your dream and do the best that you can and to not settle for anything less than what you love, right? And so he could have re- listened to millions of people who told him, you know, be reasonable, Dan, you want to go to space, that's crazy, it's not going to happen, they've already turned you down 13 times. So my thing is don't be reasonable, that's a good message. You motivated me right now. I'm going to get a lot of work done today and change the world. <laughs> I um, hope so. Now, where can people find your blog and your Twitter and, and how to get a hold of you if they just want to see more of your work? Well, my blog is singularityweblog.com. Mm-hmm. So if you just go to singularityweblog.com, you'll find links to my Twitter and everywhere. And even if you just put it on Google and search me in the Google search engine, I'm going to be the first one to pop on the on the first page. Excellent. Well, Nicola, I, I hope you get better, and I know you have a, a trip planned for um, – what conference are you heading to tomorrow? Uh, tomorrow is the Valence ISTAS 2013 uh, Conference on, San, on Technology and Society in here in Toronto. Awesome. Then on the weekend, I'm going to another one on drones – and then right after that, I'm flying to Arizona to meet Stuart Hameroff and Max Moore. Dang, B- busy weekend. Man, I, I hope we can do this again sometime because uh, I I do want to talk about drones sometime. But um, sure. we're, we're over an hour now. But uh, hey, thanks a lot for coming on. And I'll put the links to your, to your blog up. And uh, hopefully we can do it again soon. Of course. The pleasure was entirely mine. All right. Take care, Nicola. Take care, Jason.